Church, go ahead and have a seat. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're new with us, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And this morning, we're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Colossians. We're actually going to be in chapter 2 this morning. But before we get into it, in case you missed last week, if you weren't here last week, I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. It was really, really well done. I'm really grateful for the way my friend and brother Sean, that despite our data, it was an encouraging and challenging sermon. And it was challenging knowing that despite our day-to-day circumstances, despite the suffering that we might be experiencing, the Lord still reigns, right? Jesus still sits at the right hand, hand of the throne of God. And in the midst of our suffering, whatever that may be, we're still valuable in the eyes of God. We can still be used for the expansion of God's kingdom. So it was incredible message. There's a, a great video that was shared. You can find that online and on our website as well. But Paul shared with us, last week, that when we rejoice in our suffering, then the people around us will see something that's not of this world. Faith that is not found in our circumstances or the cards that we've been dealt. Rejoicing in our suffering displays a faith that is otherworldly and only comes from above. It's a faith that's built on the suffering of the cross and the blood of Jesus. It's a faith of thanksgiving and gratitude. That no matter what we have going on in our lives, we're still grateful for Christ and what he's done for us. And Paul says that if we live this way, If we live out this type of faith, we do this so that we can proclaim Christ, so that we can proclaim and teach others, making the word of God fully known to those around us, so that we can proclaim the hope of glory. And so from what we saw last week, and as we continue into this week, Paul is going to continue to plead with us to preach the gospel, to preach that Christ is all. Because he's going to remind us that there's influences in the church of Colossae that are speaking into the church. And these influences are starting to creep in. And Paul is worried about this. Paul's worried about these false teachers, these false doctrines. Or in other words, these counterfeit gods will begin to take root in the church. And people will fail to see that Christ is enough. That those in the church and even us today and even those in our spheres of influence will fail to see that Christ is all you need. And so Paul's warning against this, but here's the problem. The broadcast and propagation of the counterfeit is so prevalent in our lives. Not just in the lives of those in the church in biblical times, but in our lives as well. And not only is the counterfeit being sold to us as truth, but it's being sold as the way to overall happiness in our lives. And even worse, we're attracted to it all the time. It's something we often desire. We're constantly seeking the counterfeit things of life today. Whether you notice it or not, we're seeking counterfeit goods, counterfeit ideas, counterfeit happiness, counterfeit religion, and we're being, it's being sold to us, and often we're buying into it on a daily basis. And again, this isn't just a problem for the church back then, but it's something that we are failing to see in our lives today. In fact, this, itch, this issue is much worse today, I believe, than back in biblical times. We are bombarded by the counterfeit every single minute. Maybe you don't notice it. Maybe you don't notice how prevalent it is in your lives, or maybe you're not sure what I'm talking about, so I'm going to give you a little history lesson, so bear with me. When we try looking at our current cultural climate objectively, it can be difficult because we're just in it, right? It's so normal. It's so acceptable to us. We don't consciously recognize that we're immersed in a desire-based culture. So let me tell you a little bit about how we got to where we are today. And I got a lot of this from a book by John Mark Comer, incredible pastor and author. Um, But he shared this in his book, and this just kind of blew me away as I was reading this these last few weeks. Back in the 1940s, 
fighting and supporting the troops in World War II was the theme of the American society. And it's typically, and as it typically does, wartime brings with it wartime mentality. So scarcity, resource conservation, labor reallocation, and rationing are all the things the American people had become used to. And so when the war was over, it was well documented that the tycoons of war, the tycoons of big business, the shadow politicians of D.C., the madmen of New York City conspired to remake the American economy. Their agenda was to create an economy and our culture out of consumerism. To move away from wartime mentality of scarcity and rationing and to get every person in America spending their time and their money buying up the latest and hottest thing available. Sound familiar? iPhone, right? Every single time it comes out, that's what we want. One Wall Street broker was quoted saying this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire to want new things even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Gosh, that sounds like some sort of evil genius, right? But this was Paul Mazur from Lehman Brothers. This new culture, this new mentality of the desires of the American people was quoted by another man, E.S. Cowderick. He said this, the new economic gospel of consumption must be our new culture. Notice how he uses the word gospel there. Now, let's fast forward from the 40s and go to year 2001. Shortly after the 9-11 attacks, President Bush said this, and I'm not knocking President Bush, but merely just showing an example to help us understand where we are today. But during his first speech to the public, President Bush says this about terrorists. We must not let them frighten our nation to the point where people don't shop. That was the major warning after 9-11 tax. Don't stop shopping, people. Now, again, this isn't meant to disparage President Bush, but perhaps through a slip of the tongue, it just shows our culture where we are today, what we truly desire And so today, the digital marking that we experience just intensifies this problem. They say that the average American person sees 1,000 advertisements per day. Over 1,000 times a day, someone is selling you something. Social media being one of the main culprits. When we look on Facebook and Instagram or whatever platform you use, not only are we being hit up by the marketing departments, but we're also being hit up by the rich and famous, by our friends, by our family, all all whom curate the best moments of their lives. And the problem is, is that none of it is real. It's all counterfeit. It's counterfeit happiness and counterfeit truth. And this unintentionally, all this coming into our lives unintentionally plays into one of our core sins. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, envy. Envy is the greed for another person's life and a loss of gratitude, joy, and contentment in our own. We tend to desire more than we've been given. We're told constantly by the world that we're lacking, and we believe it. And so our desires so often to the things of this world, things that we believe will make us comfortable, things we believe will make us happy, things that we believe will make us successful, things that we believe will make us complete, but they never do. And it's not that having desires is a bad thing. In fact, we were made to desire. We were created to desire. And I love what Dallas Willard has to say about desires in our lives. He says this, desire is infinite partly because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God, made to run to God. 
We can only be satisfied by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. We are only at home in God. When we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite remains, but it is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. Ultimately, nothing in this life apart from God can satisfy our desires. Yet tragically, we continue to chase after the counterfeits. And we are sent into a constant state of angst and anger and anxiety and disillusionment and depression. We are overloaded daily with ad after ad after ad of shopping, materialism, careerism, a life of more, more, and more. Now, I know this sounds bleak. And so the question we have to ask ourselves when reading this text this morning is, how do we combat all of that? How do we combat the natural desires of our flesh and live in a world where we are being constantly bombarded by advertisements that lead us to believe that we need more than what we have? A world that leads us to being empty inside and yet full of envy. I believe it's a question we have to ask ourselves, but my hope is we can answer that today. So in this passage, we will see that Paul wants the church of Colossae and us to understand that we've been given everything we need in Christ. There's nothing we are lacking. Paul is going to encourage the church not to pursue the counterfeits that leave us empty when we have already been filled by the real thing. All right? So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's pray real quick and we'll get started. Father, we praise you for this morning, praise you for this text. We praise you for being the uncreated, infinite creator. And we thank you for creating us to desire. Yes, Father, we are a people who are always pursuing and desiring things, always wanting things to be better in our lives. And we know that you want the same for us, but in you. And so help us see that, Lord, this morning. Help us see how we pursue, when we pursue anything apart from you, it leads to destruction. And then, Lord, help us repent and turn back to you. Help us to be satisfied and grateful for the riches we have in Jesus. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So if you would, if you have your Bibles, your phones, let's go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 6. If you could sum up the theme of this entire book, it could easily be said as this. Christ is all. He is everything that there is and was and everything you need. And this is why Paul says this in verse 6. Lord, Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore... As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul is saying, walk in Christ, continue with him, just as you first received him with confidence, with encouragement and faith, full of assurance and thanksgiving. Remember when you first received the good news, Paul says. Walk in that same way daily. Remember, you've been given and received a blessing when you placed your faith in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So walk in him. Or in other words, live the way of Jesus. Live the life of Jesus. Be like a tree planted by the life-saving water of Jesus, extending its roots to the stream. And be grateful, he says. Be grateful for what you've been given. Remember what you have. Why? We see in verse 8. See to it. This is his warning. He says, be grateful because here's why. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul's saying, don't be taken captive by empty, deceptive philosophies, empty pursuits, empty ways of life. 
don't buy into the counterfeits because they don't come from Christ. They come from human traditions. They come from elemental, earthly spirits. Now there's, honestly, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of interpretations of what Paul means here when he's talking about philosophy, when he's talking about the elemental spirits. And so the easiest way for us to understand this, I believe, is to think about the most foundational and elementary ways that humans operate. The things that we value and depend on, the things that we pursue, the things that we revolve our lives around. So what is that in your life today? What is it that all your thoughts, emotions, and efforts revolve around today? For some people, our lives revolve around comfort, right? We do everything we can to create this comfortable cocoon around ourselves to make our lives as comfortable and convenient as possible. For some people, it might look like life revolves around experiences, always looking for the next trip to take, the next restaurant to try, the next adventure, always the next, what's next, what's next. For some people, life revolves around success and upward mobility, always looking for that next job opportunity, always looking for ways to get ahead in your career. And for some people, life revolves around affection, always looking for more people to affirm them and show affection to them, always looking for more people to like their posts. In fact, You may or may not know this, but did you know that you can actually buy likes on Facebook and Instagram? Seriously, there's companies out there advertising on social media that just for $5, you can purchase more likes. Or in other words, you can purchase affirmation. You can purchase affection. What does that tell you about our world? That there is a ton of people in this world that are desperate for affection, desperate for it. And Paul is saying these are the elemental spirits of the world. These are the basic desires of our hearts. And he's saying, you are buying a counterfeit version, church. Now, obviously, if you're buying likes on Facebook and Instagram, you're literally buying the counterfeit version of affection. But anything not according to Christ is a counterfeit version. It's all counterfeit. Because if you've received Jesus as your savior and your king, then the Bible says you've already been lavished with love and affection. You've already been lavished with it. Listen to 1 John 3, chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. We've been lavished with love. We've already been given eternal love and we've also been given eternal comfort. You have the comfort of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16 says this, Our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. He's given you success. Psalms say this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledging him and he will make straight your paths. He will make your path sure. He will make your path successful. These are the things that you already have in Christ. And because God created us, he knows better than we do that there's, these things are the foundational needs of our lives, love, comfort, significance. And so he provides them for us in himself. And if we already have all that, if we have all those things, then why in the world do we pursue the counterfeit versions? Why do we do that? Well, it says because we've been deceived. We've been deceived by our own sin and this world. Again, verse 8 says, it's all empty deceit. See an ad come across your... And so how often do you feel like you're lacking something? 
You see an ad come across your phone for new clothing or shoes, and you think, man, if I only had that, then I'd feel better about myself. I might actually love myself if I had those shoes. You see an ad on TV for an exotic vacation or a cruise, and you think, if only I had that, then I would find rest and comfort, the things I need right now. You see an opportunity for a job or a career pop up, and you think, if I could just change my job, that's what's going to make me successful. You see another man or a woman, and you think, wow, if I had a different husband or a different wife, that's where I'll get the affection I've been longing for all my life. It's all just empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Did you see that? It's not just deceit, but it's empty. It will never satisfy. And it's not from Christ. But you already have Christ. You have the genuine thing. You have genuine love. You have genuine comfort. You have genuine success. And it's the opposite of empty. It's the complete opposite of empty. See what he says in verse 9. Paul says this, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily in the bodily form in Jesus, and you have been filled in him, who is the head and rule of all authority. You have been filled by Christ. Counterfeits are only empty deceit, but you have been filled with the one true, genuine, infinite thing, the only thing that will ever, ever satisfy your infinite desires. And so what does that mean for us? That there's nothing in your life or in my life that we could ever be lacking. There's nothing in this life that could ever be lacking when you've been filled with Christ. The scripture says that the whole fullness of deity dwells in him and you've been filled with him. That's incredible. The God who formed the entire universe, universe, which we know today to be 27 billion light years across, filled the entire thing. The same God who formed the earth that we live on today, then filled it with what we know today to be 8.7 billion species. That same God formed you. That same God formed you. So how could you believe that he couldn't fill you with everything that you need? That's why Paul is reminding us of this in past tense. Paul says, you have been filled. You've been filled right now. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, then it's already done. It's yours. You have everything. You, you have everything you need and desire. You have it all. And so with that reminder that we've been filled, that we lack nothing, Paul's going to show us exactly what we have now that we've been filled. He's going to show us three different things today. Look at verse 11. Paul's going to show us that we've been given a place to belong. Verse 11 says this, in him, you were also, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, unlike for us today, where circumcision is merely just a procedure males endure, generally at birth, in Old Testament times, it had this very deep and sincere, sincere symbolism. Circumcision in biblical times meant that you were part of a covenant. You were part of the chosen people. In other words, you were part of the family. You were part of God's family. You were in. You belonged. And this is such a basic need for us. 
The desire to be a part of something, to belong, is so deeply ingrained in each one of us. And it's such a deep desire that many people will search for it in the most extreme places to find it. For instance, this is why the gang culture can be such an allure to young children, to teenagers. Kids that come from broken or disrupted homes, kids that live without a father or mother or perhaps don't even know who they are, children that find themselves not belonging but they know that they're supposed to, will look for it in the most extreme places. And oftentimes, gangs are there to provide that deep need for them. And so gangs will refer to themselves as a family, as this unbreakable group, driven by this desire to belong. And then oftentimes, to get into these gangs, this so-called family, you have to do something to earn your way in. You have to do something to earn your way in. You either have to survive something called being jumped in, You have to endure this beating by other gang members or you have to commit some sort of crime to display your unity to the gang, which leaves you with no way out at this point. So now you belong. But unfortunately, what we know is that that's all counterfeit. That belonging is not real. There may be a bond. There may be a central vision, but the vision isn't driven by love. It's driven by the desires of this world, greed, sex, and violence. It's all just this counterfeit image of what belonging is supposed to look like. And Paul is telling us here that we have the real thing. That by the circumcision of Christ, we are in. We are part of the family. We are part of something that is greater than us, a place where we belong. Which means, what that means is Christ cast off his body. He died. And so your belonging was purchased for you by the life of Jesus Christ. And because of that, you've been brought into this covenant. You've been brought into God's family. You are in. And here's what's important to remember. You had nothing to do with it. You had nothing to do with it to enter into that family. You had nothing to do to enter into that place of belonging. We didn't have to get jumped in. We didn't have to prove our worth or prove our allegiance because it was done for us. When Jesus died on that cross and you placed your faith in him, it was an immediate adoption into his family. Jesus paid for your belonging with his blood. He endured the torture. He endured the pain. He endured the cross. He took the crimes that you committed against God as his own. And it wasn't driven by greed and violence, the things of this world. It was driven by love, a deep love for you. You have a place to belong. You have acceptance. You have affirmation. You have affection. And you don't have to go buy it and look for the counterfeit version You don't have to worry about what other people think about you. You don't have to be jealous when other people get more attention than you. You don't have to feel anxious anymore on social media because you're already in. Jesus gave you a place to belong. And so not only did he give you a place to belong, but he gives you a new life. Verse 12 says this, you have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So the Old Testament symbolism of a covenant is circumcision and the New Testament symbolism is baptism. And just like circumcision, there's so much symbolism when it comes to baptism. When you go under the water, the image that we're supposed to see and grasp is that we are dying dying to ourselves, dying to our sin. We are dying to our old way of life, our old ways, our old life, the old powers that formerly held sway over us. 
It's this image of death as you go under the water. It's accepting God's judgment of sin, and the sentence is death. But we don't die alone. We die with Christ, who died for us. And not only is baptism seen as the grave for the old self, but it's also the birthplace of the new. And so as you're coming up out of the water, it's the image of being raised from the dead with Jesus Christ. You explode out of the water like Christ exploded out of the grave. You are proclaiming a new order, a new alliance, a new power that holds you. And anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. You're a new creation. Now, what that doesn't mean is that you're no longer a sinner. It doesn't mean that you no longer struggle with the temptations of the flesh in this world. But what it does mean is that because you've been filled with Christ, the divine power, the whole fullness of deity that dwells in bodily form in Jesus has now filled you. You have that divine power that is now released into your life means that your struggle is not alone anymore. You are no longer alone. And baptism is the public testament proclamation that this is the beginning of a transformation of living the way of Jesus. I love how John Piper describes being a Christian. He says this, this is what it means to be a Christian. It's to live in the reality of what our baptism portrays. Those of us who have been baptized are living out our baptism day by day. We look away from ourselves and we look to God. And we say, because of Christ, your son, God, I come to you. My hope is based on his death for me and my death in him. Because of him, I trust your working in me and for me. The same power and glory that you used to raise him from the dead, you will use to help me day by day, living a life of Jesus. That's why we get baptized. It's this incredible experience that kind of just sears that truth into our minds and our hearts. Because there will be times in your life where you're going to struggle with sin. And it seems like there's no way out. There's no way to be able to kick it. And you can look back at your baptism and you can declare, no. I went under the water. I died to that sin because Jesus died on the cross. There's going to be times where you're really struggling. I've been here to understand that you have been saved that God actually loves you, that you've been forgiven, and you can look back and say, no, I came up out of the water. I'm alive. I have new life. God brought me to this life as one of his children. I belong because Jesus rose from the dead. That's what baptism means. That's why it's so important. So when you experience that, you don't have to look for the counterfeit version. You don't have to keep trying to give up certain things or have certain spiritual experiences. Try doing all these religious activities to find new life. These were the things that these other believers in Colossae were trying to convince the church to do. It's what we are trying to, what every advertisement is trying to convince us to do, that we need these other things to fill our lives, to give us new life. And Paul is saying, no, don't. You don't have to go find that. You don't have to go out and find a new life. You don't have to find a new job. You don't have to daydream about having a different spouse. You were raised with him through faith as the powerful working of God raised Jesus from the dead. You already have new life. You have it all. And your baptism is what reminds you of that. And so if you've turned 
to Jesus to be your Savior and Lord and you haven't been baptized yet, then, man, it's time. It's time to be baptized. We're going to have a baptism on Easter Sunday, and you need to be a part of that. Yes, you've been saved. Yes, you've been filled. Yes, you're already a member of God's family. You've been given new life. Baptism won't change any of that, but it's worth celebrating. Amen? It is worth celebrating. One of my favorite days of the year. So if you have any questions about that, please feel free to come talk to me or Sean. We'd love to talk to you about that, what that looks like, how, like what all is going to happen that day. Um, but it's my favorite day of the year, celebrating new life in Christ. So that's coming up. But back to the text. Christ gave you a place. When you've been filled with Christ, he gave you three things. You belong, you've been given a new life, and then finally, you've been given a clean slate. At the end of verse 13, it says this, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And how did he do that? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, not in part, but the whole. And so he disarmed the rulers and authorities, Satan and his brothers, Satan and his brothers who are constantly accusing us all the time, and he disarmed them. He put them to shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul says that you have new life because of this, because you have a clean slate. That's what gives you new life. There was this record of debt that stood against us. And the truth is, is that we had zero hope of ever paying that debt off, zero Now, to be clear, Paul isn't trying to compare that debt to the debt that we might hold today with a car loan or a house. It's so much greater, so much bigger than that. And here's why. From the very first moment that you entered into this world, you've been racking up debt. You've been racking it up, and it stands against you. Because right from the beginning, you've been sinning against God the whole time, even before you began. Listen to what it says in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The psalmist is saying that from the moment of conception, I was a sinner. And it just gets worse from there. When we're honest, we see this with our children. We see the same thing. We see them sin. We see them lie. We see them steal. We see them directly disobey exactly what we just told them not to do. And we did the same thing. Sinner. It gets worse. You're a teenager. You found out more ways to lie, more ways to cheat the truth. You gossiped. You held anger towards others. You were jealous, envious of others, of what, they, what you didn't have. You worshiped popularity. Sinner. As adults, we fight with our spouses. We yell at our children. We worry about money. We still have FOMO. We still worry about what we're missing out on. All those sins and thousands of more are all written down as a record of debt against you. And the Bible says that there is a day coming when the record of debt is going to be pulled down off the shelf and this massive debt that we've been building up during our lives is going to be gone through line by line by God. Just imagine what that's going to be like. Have you, you know how painful it is to admit sin to your spouse? maybe a single sin, how painful it is to admit that to children. Just imagine doing that for every single one of your sins in your life. But God, God is going to take out this big stamp and he's going to mark it canceled, paid in full, done. And it's not because he's a nice guy. If that were the case, then I wouldn't feel too good about my hope that I have in him because with my luck, I'd catch him on a bad day. 
But in all seriousness, God is a God of love. He's a God of justice and righteousness and goodness. It's against his nature to just let you off the hook, to cancel your debt. It would be unjust. It wouldn't be right and it wouldn't make him the good God that he is. So no, your debt isn't marked canceled because of anything that you did or anything that you can do. And it isn't marked canceled because God was feeling nice that day. Our debt gets canceled out because it was paid for. We just sang about it. It was nailed to the cross, not in part, but the whole. Think of that imagery. Every single one of your sins was pounded with a nail into the hands and feet of Jesus. And he willingly took them. Not just willingly, he joyfully took them. Hebrews 12 says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This is something that he did joyfully. He took all your sin. Therefore, there is nothing anyone can say to you. There is no one who can, no one who can shame you or guilt you or accuse you, not even yourself. Not even you can claim guilt or shame on yourself. It's so easy to do, isn't it? Listen to what Romans 8 says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Can you? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn? Can you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And he is at the right hand of the throne of God who is indeed interceding for us day by day. Paul is saying that Jesus died. He cleaned your slate. He paid your debt that you couldn't pay. And now he's in heaven speaking the best of you every single day. So who could possibly say anything to you that would justify guilt or shame? You have a clean slate. You don't have to buy the counterfeit version. You don't have to atone for your sins. You don't have to try and punish yourself and beat yourself up and clean your slate on your own. You don't have to try to do more good things. You don't have to try and catch God on a good day. He's let you go free from your debt. You don't have to do anything because Christ has done it for you. And in him, you have everything you need and desire. You've been filled with Christ. The whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You've been filled with that. You have it all. And so back to my original question. How do we combat all the things that are thrown at us on a daily basis? Advertisement after advertisement, ad after ad, picture after picture, How do we combat against our fleshly desires in a world that makes us believe we are somehow lacking and it fills our hearts full of envy? Well, Paul gave us the answer all the way back in verse six. Paul says, just as you received Christ, walk in him. Be rooted, built up in him, abound in thanksgiving. Paul says, be grateful. Be grateful with what you have because what you have is the real and authentic thing and it will never go away. You've been given a clean slate, forgiven of all your sins. You have been given a new life, raised to life with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And finally, you've been given a place to belong. You are in and nothing can separate you from God's family and his love. Gratitude for what we have in Christ. That's how we combat the elemental spirits. That's how we combat our flesh in this world. This is how we can see through the counterfeits that we're being sold, 
how we can see the ways we're being deceived to desire things that will only leave us empty. This is how we truly live according to Christ, being built up and rooted up in him, abounding in thanksgiving. It reminds me of one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 1, verse 1 says this, blessed, or in other words, happy, content, grateful, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But in his delight is the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. Delight in the Lord. Let your desires be satisfied in him alone. Get to know him. Get to know his word. Spend time with him. Talk with him. Pray with him. Sit in stillness in his presence. Be planted by the life-giving stream of water and yield the fruit of gratitude and thanksgiving because we've been filled in him. We've been given it all. You have it all. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Again, we thank you for this text and this truth that you shared with us. That all too often we can be convinced that there's things that we're lacking, things that we need, things that we desire. That the elemental spirits of this world can have such influence in our lives, God. And God, we just want to confess that to you, that we chase after those things. And we want to repent of that today. We want to turn back to you, God. We want to live a life that's wrapped up in you. A life that recognizes that we've been filled by you. Filled completely. That we lack nothing. That you've given us some of the most basic desires and needs in our life. A place to belong. You've given us a new life. You've cleaned our slate. You've paid our debt. And because of that, God, there is no guilt. There is no shame in our lives. We don't have to carry that anymore. We can live in freedom. Oh, how beautiful is that? Just even saying that just gives me so much peace, Lord. And so I just pray, Lord, that when we leave this room this morning, that we wouldn't forget what you shared with us this morning, that your words wouldn't just fall on deaf ears, that it would be rooted in our hearts, that we would be rooted up, built up in your son, Jesus. And we would abound in thanksgiving for what you've given us. You've given us everything we need. We lack nothing, Lord. We confess that. We proclaim that to you this morning. We've been filled by you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and continue to worship.